Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. (sighs) The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. One possibility is there was a virus that went straight from bats to humans. Option two, there was a series of jumps from bats through intermediate hosts. Number three, which the Chinese government is uh, promoting, that there was some kind of uh, virus that got stuck in some frozen food somewhere and uh, was shipped to uh, to Wuhan. And then number four, likely possibility of an accidental lab leak. In the earliest days of the pandemic, China prevented World Health inspectors from coming to Wuhan for nearly a month. They immediately started taking down databases that had previously uh, been accessible to the public. They immediately started silencing people who may have been able to provide invaluable evidence to the world about the origins of of COVID-19. As a matter of fact, the only reason that we had the the sequence genome of the SARS-CoV-2 virus as early as we did is that there was basically a Chinese scientist who went rogue. We've seen an over-politicization of all of this, whether it's uh, Republicans versus Democrats, America versus China, or whatever. And we need to try, at least to the best of our ability, to get over all of that and just ask the questions, where does this come from? We need a WHO. If we didn't have one, we'd be desperately now scrambling to, to create it. But the WHO is in this very, very difficult position because it answers to its member states. And so it's always trying to find this balance. And if the WHO isn't careful, it could end up being in the crosshairs of everybody, particularly China and uh, and the United States. Jamie Metzl is a technology and healthcare futurist, geopolitical expert, and a senior fellow at the Atlanta Council. He is a member of the World Health Organization's International Advisory Panel on Human Genome Editing. Jamie previously served in the U.S. National Security Council, State Department, and the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. 
Jamie has been on our show before talking about his terrific book, Hacking Darwin, Genetic Engineering and the Future of Humanity. He joins us today to talk about the origins of the coronavirus. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our sponsor. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Jamie, welcome back to Intelligence Matters. The last time we had you on the show was pre-COVID, and it seems like so long ago now. It was like- but a, welcome. Thanks so much, Mike. Really thrilled to be back with you. It doesn't <laughs> feel like a different life. Remember, I went over to the studio, we sat <laughs> it together, does. and it was a small enclosed room. We didn't wear masks. We didn't feel <laughs> right. afraid of being in the, in the presence of another person. Exactly. When you were on before, it was to chat about your then new book, Hacking Darwin, Genetic Engineering and the Future of Humanity. How did that go? How did the book do? What was the response to it? Yeah, the, it went incredibly well. The book did did really uh, well. Lots of people read it. Um, but more importantly, more importantly for me, it helped spark a much bigger, broader conversation about how we should think about uh, managing and, and ultimately governing some of the most powerful technologies our species has ever possessed. And we we suddenly... It's kind of crazy. Our one species among the billions who've ever lived suddenly has the ability to read, write, and hack the code of life. And the question for us with this, and frankly, with lots of other technologies, is can we generate the wisdom to use them wisely? And so it's led to a lot of, uh, of other things. As I said, a lot of conversations. I was invited to join the World Health Organization International Advisory Committee on Human Genome Editing, our report is going to come out uh, in uh, in March, April of, uh, of 2021, making recommendations about how uh, human genome editing um, should ideally or could ideally be governed and, and lots of other things. So it's been a, a very exciting and, and ongoing journey. So we were on, when you were on before, we talked about your book. Um, today, we're going to talk about the origins of coronavirus. Several weeks ago, you published an article in Newsweek titled, Beijing Must Come Clean About COVID-19 Origins. So let me ask you two questions right off the bat. One is, how is it possible that well over a year after the first human infection, we still don't know the origins? It's really not possible, but for politics. Um, certainly, we don't have an unlimited ability to trace the origin of every pathogenic outbreak. But actually, the skills that we have through genome sequencing and tracing and just basic forensics are pretty great. It is my strong view, as you know, Mike, from that and from my other writings, the reason we don't know is that the Chinese government has been engaged in a massive obfuscation and cover-up effort for more than the last year. And that's why we know uh, that uh, records have been removed or destroyed 
samples have been destroyed. Uh, people in China, uh, citizen journalists who've asked tough questions have disappeared. There's a gag order uh, on Chinese scientists to not um, publish anything or speak publicly in any way about the origins of the, of the pandemic. And so because most of the evidence is in China and there's such not just limited access, but an, such an active effort to destroy it or cover it up, it, it makes the, the process, the essential process of understanding what happened all the more difficult. So the second, the second question, Jamie, which is kind of a bit of an obvious one, why is it so important to know the origins? It's really important. When, when a plane crashes, you could say, well, a plane crashed. We should redouble our efforts to make sure that we have safe skies. And, and you'd be right. But when a plane crashes, we also want to know, well, why did this particular plane crash? Because that could point to a much bigger problem. And so certainly you could say, well, there are lots of things that could lead to pandemics. One of them is uh, unsafe laboratories, and one of the, another is climate change and ecosystem destruction and other things, and we should do all of them. But to prioritize our response, we need to recognize where the biggest challenges are. And if this is something, which I believe it most likely the case that COVID-19 comes from an accidental lab leak from the Wuhan Institute of Virology, well, that's a pretty big problem because that's not the only institute of virology in all of China or in all of the world. And we need to prioritize that response now and in the future. And if it's something else, that would be our, our starting point. So I, I just think it would be enormously self-defeating to say, well, it doesn't matter where the, the worst pandemic in a century comes from, and we should just play nice with everybody and move on and, and try to do a little bit of everything. And this this not knowing, right, this is a very different situation from other pandemics like SARS, right? Yeah. So in SARS, relatively quickly, we were able to trace its origins. We were able to chart the intermediate hosts. So for a virus to go from, let's say, bats to humans, it's very rare it goes straight bats to humans. But lots of viruses have reached us, bats through some intermediate host, whether it's pigs or, or something else, uh, and then into, uh, into humans. And in a full year of looking, and the Chinese government is massively incentivized both to look and to find evidence of this kind of natural zoonotic jump in the wild through these intermediate animal hosts. There's been no evidence of that, but there is tons of at least highly suggestive circumstantial evidence, in my view, that points to the, the serious possibility of an accidental lab leak. So, Jamie, can we kind of walk through all the possibilities here for where this thing came from? Sure. Without getting into the evidence yet for each, just kind of walk through the possibilities. That'd be great. Yeah. So, sure. So one possibility is there was a virus that went straight from bats to humans. Maybe a bat bit somebody, uh, maybe somebody in a market was cutting up a bat and got blood into a cut. So that's option one. Option two uh, is that, as we mentioned a moment ago, there was a series of jumps from bats through intermediate hosts, like people have mentioned pangolins or civets. And then that virus mutated uh, in that environment and then ultimately reached uh, humans. Number three, um, which the Chinese government is uh, promoting, which makes not much sense to me, but um, that there was some kind of uh, virus that got stuck in some 
frozen food somewhere and uh, was shipped to uh, to Wuhan. Again, I, I know we're not going to talk about the likelihood, but that seems very low likelihood to me. And then number four is an accidental lab leak. You mean from outside? Outside of China. Well, that's what the Chinese government is saying, that this is it, it may have started gotcha. someplace okay, else gotcha. and it got sent in a, in a frozen package to, to China. I mean, it, I think it's ridiculous, but let's leave that on the table as a possibility. And then number four um, is okay. the possibility uh, of, and I'll call it the likely possibility, of an accidental lab leak. And, and are there two possibilities when it comes to the lab um, naturally occurring? Research on a naturally occurring virus versus research on a man-made virus? Are those two well, distinct possibilities? I, I wouldn't necessarily um, categorize it that way. I mean, some people have, have talked about genetically engineered virus versus non-genetically engineered. And, and right. by that, what they would mean is using the tools of genome editing. I think a lot of people are familiar with CRISPR and their other tools um, to actually manipulate using genome editing tools a, uh, a virus. Then there's another possibility, we'll call it three possibilities. And then the second possibility is there is just a really dangerous virus that maybe exists in a remote cave somewhere and it exists in one of these labs. And so without any kind of manipulation, that leaks. Where third possibility um, is that there, that there is this kind of dangerous, naturally occurring pathogen. And then experiments are done on that virus in the lab. And I think some people are starting to hear about uh, this so-called gain-of-function research. And that's kind of like everybody with a dog. You understand right. that you now have a dog, but the dog's ancestors were wolves. And how did wolves become dogs? It wasn't through genome editing. It was through selective breeding. And so essentially what gain-of-function research is, is selective breeding. You select four qualities in a virus, uh, which it could be the ability to replicate rapidly or infect human cells or things like that. Okay. So walk us through the evidence from your perspective. The evidence for a lab leak or for everything. Walk us through where yeah, you think sure. the evidence points. So let's look at- Better, yeah, better okay. question. Let's look at these four options. Number one would be a series of uh, animal to animal jumps, a zoonotic jump through intermediate hosts is the technical terms. But basically it means- bat to whatever, pangolin or civet to cat to, to anything else uh, to human. That would be a very likely possibility. That's what happened with the first SARS. But in the first SARS, there was actually evidence that turned up. Here we are one more than one year after the beginning uh, of, the, uh, of the pandemic, and there is absolutely no evidence for that. It could be. There are lots of scientists who think that's what happened. Um, and it's, it's a very, very real possibility. Frozen food hypothesis, I think it's extremely, extremely unlikely, absolutely no evidence. Um, and so it's kind of a ridiculous hypothesis, but we shouldn't be in the position now of eliminating hypotheses, but just evaluating them. And that leads us to the, the possibility of an accidental lab leak. And so here would be my kind of best case for why I think this is the most likely option. First, uh, the Wuhan Institute of Virology is a relatively new level four virology institute um, that is the only level four virology institute in all of China, which is the highest level. And so that's like we have some of those here in the United States. And I think everybody's seen the movies where everyone's wearing hazmat suits and, and, and things like mm. that. 
So in 2012, um, six Chinese miners went into a copper cave in Yunnan province in southern China, which is more than a thousand miles south of Wuhan, um, to clean things up because this, this, uh, this copper mine had become infested with bats. All of them got very sick which, with what we now recognize as uh, symptoms that are exactly like the symptoms of COVID-19. Three of them died. Two years, or the year later, a team from the Wuhan Institute of Virology, and there were others there as well, went to that cave and took samples back from that, uh, that cave. One of those samples is called RATG13 virus, and that was in their database. That virus is the closest known genetic relative to the SARS-CoV-2 virus. We also know that, that the Wuhan Institute of Virology was engaging in gain-of-function research, which I just described, on the viruses in their repository. And we know that as part of the, that gain-of-function research, they were exposing these, virus, these viruses to humanized mice. And so when I say humanized mice, what it means is mice whose genomes were manipulated um, so that they have human ACE2 receptors. I think many people have heard about the spike protein on the virus. It connects with the ACE2 receptor on the human genome. So these mice um, were essentially genetically engineered so that they could respond to viruses just like, um, just like humans do. Then we have this outbreak. Um, and the outbreak, again, I said there's no evidence of animal-to-animal -animal transmission. But suddenly, this virus that shows up is perfectly adapted for humans. How did that happen? It could be that that happened in the wild in, in some way that we still haven't found. Or it could be, through this gain-of-function research, it was it was manipulated. That doesn't mean genetically engineered, but it means pushed um, in the direction of being high of, of being uh, highly contagious and transmissible for humans. So that's the basis of that first piece what of would, argument. Yeah. What would be the, the the purpose of such research? What would be the purpose of such gain of function? Yeah. Research. So gain of, Why would you do that? Gain-of-function research is very controversial in the scientific world. And in the United States and elsewhere, there are some people who are strongly supportive of it. Because, And the argument is, well, we know we're going to face very many dangerous um, pathogens in the future. Rather than wait for them to face us, why don't we learn more about how viruses grow and become more dangerous so we can start developing treatments and vaccines. There are others in the United States who say, hey, wait a second, we are creating a monster because we are fearing another monster. Why, how can we create a monster? So there was a huge debate mm -hmm. about that, uh, so much so that after some, some very controversial research came out in 2014, the Obama administration established a moratorium on US government funding for gain-of-function research. There was a grant, however, that had already been provided to an organization called the EcoHealth Alliance, and they passed some of that money, which wasn't all of the funding, but some of that money went to the Wuhan Institute of Virology for this, uh, for this research. So there are many people, Mark Lipsich at Harvard is, is one of them, but there are many others who have sounded the alarm about 
gain-of-function research. There are others who think that it's, it's important. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, then we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Jamie Metzl. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Let me come back to what I was saying before about why I believe the most likely origin of COVID-19 is an accidental leak from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. I talked about the evidence uh, of, for the gain-of-function research, the fact that SARS-CoV-2's closest genetic relative is this RATG13 virus that was extracted from the cave in Yunnan in 2013 and brought to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. We've talked about the gain-of-function research. Then we need to look at what China did in the earliest days of the pandemic until now. And so in the earliest days of the pandemic, China prevented world health inspectors to, from coming to Wuhan for nearly a month. They immediately started taking down databases that had previously uh, been accessible to the public. They immediately started silencing people who may have been able to provide invaluable evidence to the world about the origins of, of COVID-19. As a matter of fact, the only reason that we had the, the sequence genome of the SARS-CoV-2 virus as early as we did is that there was basically a Chinese scientist who went rogue and paid the consequences for sharing that information. And it didn't just end there. For the last year, there's just been a massive cover-up that's involved removing or eliminating databases, eliminating samples, silencing uh, or imprisoning people with, uh, with evidence about where, uh, about where this came from, uh, and not allowing the World Health Organization the kind of access that would be required to get to the bottom of this essential question. You know, on, on January 15th, Jamie, um, Secretary Pompeo made a statement about the U.S. having, I guess, intelligence information that several researchers inside the lab became sick in the fall of 2019 with what the secretary said were symptoms consistent with COVID. He also, he also said in that statement that Wuhan had been engaged in secret projects by the Chinese military involving laboratory animal experiments. Do you have any insight into this information, who it's been shared with, why it hasn't been made public, would you like to see it, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah. So I do have actually a lot of information on that. And I was quietly in touch um, with members of the US government, encouraging them to go fully public with this essential information. And it was really unfortunate that the Mike uh, Pompeo statement came in the last days of the Trump administration, where there were all of these declarations and pronouncements happening one after the other. And, and unfortunately, I think it, it was lost. And so, and these are two you know, very important pieces of, of information. First, um, the fact that, that people had COVID-like symptoms, it's significant. I mean, it's hard to differentiate COVID from pneumonia. Um, but uh, one, if people had those symptoms, but two, um, Dr. Xi, who's the, the, the famous or infamous 
um, Chinese batwoman, the scientist at the WIV, she had previously said, well, no one in her lab had been, uh, had been sick. The second piece of information I think is, is more significant, and that's that the, the uh, Chinese People's Liberation Army had been doing secret animal pathogen research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, and, the, and the, certainly the Chinese authorities uh, hadn't made any kind of declara declaration uh, under their, their international treaty obligations or let the WHO know about that. And, and the reason why that is significant is for the people who are arguing in China or elsewhere who are arguing against an accidental lab leak as being a serious possibility, a lot of them are trusting the civilian authorities at the Wuhan Institute of Virology who say, well, we didn't have anything like this in our repository. But it's clear that there was lots that was happening at the Wuhan Institute of Virology that the civilians weren't part of and didn't even know about. And so I, I certainly think this is very important information. I've called publicly uh, for the US government to release as much of that raw data as possible. I'd love for uh, the US uh, uh, intelligence and others to share that with at least our Five Eyes intelligence partners and, and put out a joint statement. I think this is, it's, it's really important stuff and it's not conclusive evidence, but it's significant evidence. Jimmy, I want to come back very quickly to, to something that you said earlier that I wasn't really aware of, and that was US funding, some US funding making its way to the Wuhan lab. And are you essentially saying that that US taxpayers may have helped fund the work that produced COVID-19? Is that I, I am saying too that. strong of no, a no. statement? Uh, uh, I am saying that. Uh, there was funding. Um, part of it came from the Defense Department. Um, part of it came from uh, Dr. Fauci's office. And in the early days, the idea behind that funding is, well, if we want to understand these dangerous viruses, these da dangerous pathogens, we need to be doing research where they are. And that was, uh, that was in China. And that's also why I'm, I'm saying, I, I've said from the beginning, I started raising essential questions about the origins of the SARS-CoV-2 virus early in, in 2020. And what I said then, and I believe now, we have to point fingers. Like we have to say, well, where does this come from and who's accountable? And certainly China, um, if this theory is true, would bear the lion's share of the responsibility. But we also need to point our fingers at ourselves um, and look at well, what is the type of work that we were funding? And the, the, the chain of transmission, it went from the US government to the EcoHealth Alliance and then to the, the, the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And we should be asking those, those kinds of questions. And we've seen an over-politicization of all of this, whether it's uh, Republicans versus Democrats, America versus China or whatever. And we need to try, at least to the best of our ability, to get over all of that and just ask the questions, where does this come from? What are the problems that allowed this pandemic to begin and how do we fix them? And as you know, the WHO has been in China investigating the origins. You were very skeptical of that investigation producing objective results. We've talked a little bit about why that's the case. They just came out with their initial findings. They said it was extremely unlikely. I think it's a quote, extremely unlikely that the virus originated in the lab and they even left open the possibility of the virus right originating outside China. Uh, your reaction to the report? Yeah, so I put out probably a, didn't surprise you. I put out a statement immediately after that February nine press conference in Wuhan uh, between the Chinese authorities 
and the International Expert Committee absolutely condemning that what they had announced at that conference. It was truly a farce. But one thing that people are really confused on, and I, I love the WHO. I'm a big supporter of the WHO. I actually think Dr. Tedros Adhanom, the director, is doing a great job. But there's a lot of confusion in this investigation about who is actually doing it. If you ask the WHO, they would say, well, we're not the ones doing this investigation. We have this internet independent International Expert Advisory Committee, and they are doing an investigation. And most people don't know that it's a joint investigation between that independent committee and the Chinese government. So when they did the press event, it wasn't the WHO making that pronouncement. It was this joint committee. And the really tragic thing about that is, well, is that nobody on earth understands that subtlety. Everybody thinks, oh, the WHO said it's not a lab leak and it could be frozen foods. And that was why I was in, certainly in close touch with people at the WHO immediately after that press conference. And I said, you've got to clarify this because if people think that the WHO is essentially carrying the Chinese government's water because the, the February 9 press event basically was all of the Chinese points. It was just presented by the Chinese and this, and this expert committee. And that's why I was very encouraged when three days later on, on February 12th, Dr. Tedros uh, said at a, at a press conference, we're actively examining all hypotheses, which meant that the lab leak hypothesis is still very, very much on the table. And then he said a, a few days later, also in a press event, I don't know why people are calling this a WHO investigation. This is an independent investigation by this expert committee alongside the Chinese government. Nobody outside of the WHO appreciates that subtlety. And that's what's so tragic. And that's why I and, and friends and scientists all around the world are working very actively to, to say, well, no, what we need to have is a full and unrestricted international forensic investigation with access to all necessary resources and examining all relevant hypotheses. So it's interesting, you know, when I was doing the research for this podcast for this episode, I kept on seeing the investigation as a WHO, right? So, so that perception is still out there. That's not good for the WHO. It's not good for international organizations in general. Um, it's just very interesting how strong that perception is. Yeah, it's it's so critical, and that's why I'm, I'm in close touch with the WHO. Um, and again, I'm a huge supporter of the WHO. We need a WHO. If we didn't have one, we'd be desperately now scrambling to to create it. But the WHO is in this very very difficult position because it answers to its member states, and so it's always trying to find this balance. And if the WHO isn't careful. Um, it could end up just being in the crosshairs of everybody, particularly China and uh, and the United States. And again, as I was saying before, that's why the February 9 Wuhan press conference was such a tragedy. It was really a low point because the WHO position must be we need a full and unrestricted, credible forensic investigation into the origins of COVID. That's the standard. It's up to China whether China wants to play along, provide information, not provide information, allow WHO investigators in or not in. But the WHO shouldn't be in the position of publicizing China's obfuscation or its its cover-up. And it's a really, really tricky position. And what I'm trying to do is highlight the very significant flaws 
and shortcomings of this joint investigation by the expert committee and the Chinese government, while at the same time recognizing that we must support the WHO and its essential role in the world. So, Jamie, what what do we have to do to get to the bottom of this? What would have to happen? What would China have to agree to? What, what would it look like? Well, the first thing that we have to do is to clearly articulate what a full investigation would look like. The starting point can't be, oh, we know China isn't going to give us much information. We know they may let some WHO investigators in, but they're going to give them a highly curated study tour where there are apparatchiks monitoring not just the international investigators, but the Chinese scientists who are with them. We need to articulate what's the goal. And then we need to measure China's and everybody else's behavior and transparency against that uh, against that goal. So yes, we need lots of information, but we need to tell the Chinese what it is that we need. We know that there were all of these databases of viruses at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, for example, that have disappeared. We need access to that. We need to have, um, we need to be able to confidentially interview all of the relevant Chinese scientists, all of the people who worked at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, some of whom have vanished off of the face of the earth. We need whistleblower provisions so that people can speak openly and honestly without fearing that they will be disappeared or imprisoned or, or even killed. I mean, we really need to have all of that. In terms of, of understanding the if there was a zoonotic jump, animal to animal jump, well, the Chinese government is all in with that. I mean, that's the story they would like to happen. So they're going to be very, and they are being very collaborative on that, on this kind of somewhat crazy story of frozen foods. Uh, Chinese government is all in on that. And that's why the one hypothesis that the Chinese government is most afraid of, that it's spent more than a year covering up the lab leak hypothesis, it really needs a serious investigation. We need to, frankly, demand on behalf of the nearly 3 million people who've now died from COVID um, access to all of those resources that we need. And whatever China provides, great. If they're not providing it, we need to be very public about that. And I've also, uh, I had a piece with Glenn Gerstel um, talking about, well, how can we get information even if China isn't collaborating? And certainly we could do much more working with our five eyes intelligence partners to get that kind of information, not just about the origins of this pandemic, but to have surveillance about future pandemics, because we can't rely on an authoritarian government like China to give us information, especially when they're not doing it, about threats that could have this kind of devastating impact on all of us. So Jamie, the reason the Chinese so, so strongly don't want the truth to be that this originated at the lab why? When you put yourself in China's shoes, this could look really bad. If the story comes out that COVID-19 stems from an accidental lab leak, followed by a criminal cover-up, question one is, what was the research that you were doing and why? Question two, how did you have this kind of leak? Or from, how did, question two is, how did you have this kind of leak from a facility that was supposed to have the highest levels of security? And question three is knowing if they did that COVID-19 came from an accidental lab leak, how many people are now dead because of this potential cover-up? So the consequences of this are huge. Let's just say that it was proven mm -hmm. 
without mm-hmm. a doubt. And certainly we aren't at that level now. But let's just say um, that there's some smoking gun or whatever it is, some email um, that proves without a doubt that this was the result of the of an accidental lab leak, that the Chinese government knew it, that they had an active and engaged year-long cover-up. What would happen? Well, certainly there would be a lot of anger all around the world from countries who have been devastated economically and in terms of lives and livelihoods lost. There would be an incredible level of anger at China. Within the Chinese government, it would be a question whether Xi Jinping would even retain his authority because of the magnitude of what happened. China, the Chinese government has a long history of covering up really big things. When you go to, to Beijing and you see Mao Zedong's uh, portrait in Tiananmen Square, um, people aren't talking about because they can't. The whatever, 47 million people who died as a result of Mao's disastrous policies, primarily in the Great Leap Forward. When you hear all of this about Tibet and how basically a whole history of a people and a civilization is being erased, uh, you realize that for the Chinese government, managing these kinds of narratives is core of of what they do. And that's why we need to really ask some tough questions, because if the Chinese government internally wants to tell some kind of made up story, that's up to them. But we in the international community shouldn't and frankly can't for our own safety be part of that process. Jamie, one last question. Do you have a sense the Biden administration is going to make this a priority? So I know uh, that people in the Biden administration are very aware of these issues. They are tracking them very closely. Uh, The president himself has talked about the need to have open access to all information. Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, has spoken uh, about this. But your question is the right one. Where does this fit within the grand scheme of priorities? Um, If the United States were to go all in for this investigation, you can pretty much rule out any other kinds of collaboration with the Chinese government on climate change or or lots of other things. And so what I do think um, is that right now, the US government is in a little bit of a holding pattern where they're doing an intelligence review, I'm sure, about, well, how, about how strong is the case and waiting for additional information to be unearthed that could lead us to know more, perhaps even more, about where COVID-19 comes from. And that's this tricky situation because uh, as long as China is able to control that kind of access, to not allow access to databases and samples and, and personnel, I think it's quite likely that we'll still be in this gray area. And when that's the case, the political cost of making the type of really strong push to even try to get this kind of access and information will uh, will go up. So I do, I've called on, on the U.S. government um, to establish a, 9/11, a bipartisan 9-11 style commission to look at the multiple failures related to COVID. Certainly China, our own failures, and there's a reason why Taiwan has nine dead and we have 500,000 dead, and it's not about the origins, it's about the, the, uh, the response. And then the World Health Organization. Dr. Tedros would be the first to say that there are significant shortcomings in the WHO. A lot of those are structural. Uh, We, the countries of the world, have given it a weak mandate. We've not given it the resources uh, that, uh, that it needs. And so to protect all of us, we need a stronger WHO that's able to build 
better public health capacities in the poorest countries of the world. It's able to have a much stronger emergency response capability. All these things are needed. We really need to get to the bottom of the problems in order to start fixing them. Jamie, um, as always, uh, is very good to chat with you. Thank you so much for joining us. Really my great pleasure, Mike. Anytime. That was Jamie Metzl. I'm Micah Morell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. Intelligence Matters is sponsored by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. This show is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Jake Rosen, Paulina Smolinski, and Ariana Freeman. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS Audio. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.